This is Shakespeare and Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, the romantic comedy that truly lives up to its title, It's As You Like It. Come, woo me, woo me, for now I'm in a holiday humor like enough to consent. Mistress, dispatch you with your safest haste and get you from our court. Thus must I from the smoke into the smother, from tyrant duke unto a tyrant brother. What shall I call thee when thou art a man? I'll have no worse a name than Jove's own page. And look you therefore, call me Ganymede. <laughs> all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. As always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? This is As You Like It, in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in whatever state is in close proximity to the Forest of Arden. The Duke has been usurped by his brother and gone into exile into the forest, leaving his daughter Rosalind to live with her cousin Celia. When the strapping young Orlando shows up to a wrestling match in court, Rosalind is smitten, but is too smart to say. Before you can say, oh wow, that's a convenient plot point, the Duke shows up and exiles Rosalind, who flees to Arden with Celia and Touchstone, the Duke's fool. Orlando, meanwhile, also flees to Arden, for his wicked brother Oliver is plotting his death. In Arden, Rosalind, now dressed as a boy, meets Orlando, who is running around putting up love sonnets to Rosalind. In disguise, she helps Orlando learn to woo women. Meanwhile, Touchstone falls in love with Audrey, a slovenly country girl, and Rosalind inadvertently becomes the third point in a love triangle with young Phoebe and Sylvius, a dopey shepherd. Oliver shows up in Arden, having repented his evil ways, just in time to fall in love with Celia. Comedy ensues until the final act, when everyone marries everyone else, and it's learned that the evil Duke has given up being evil, thus assuring everyone a happy ending. Oh, and at some point, a character named Jakewees gives a famous speech about all the world being a stage. It is often said, and rightly so, that in all of Shakespeare's work, there is but a handful of great roles for women. In the early plays of his career, namely Two Gentlemen of Verona and Taming of the Shrew, Shakespeare adhered to his more sexist instincts. As his career advanced, the roles for women became only marginally better. All that changed between 1599 and 1605, when Shakespeare gave us a quartet of plays in which it's women who drive the plot. Twelfth Night, Measure for Measure, and All's Well That Ends Well all feature unique female heroines, but it is As You Like It which was his first and greatest triumph. In all those other plays, the female heroines are forced to share the plot with masculine heroes. Viola has to give way to the subplot involving Sir Toby and Malvolio, Helena cedes the stage to Petrolus, and Isabella spends a lot of time on the sidelines so that Pompey Bum, Lucio, Antonio, and the Duke can have their moment of glory. As You Like It may be the only play in which it's women who truly dominate the stage and the action. Rosalind, Celia, Audrey, and Phoebe are a mighty quartet who are always at the center of things. The men have to struggle to keep up with them, and at no point do the men ever drive the action forward. Audrey forces Touchstone to marry her. Phoebe provokes Silvius, and if not for Rosalind's interference, Orlando would still be running around through Arden with all his bad poetry in tow. Even Celia is active in her own history, choosing to exile herself with Rosalind and suggesting that they bring Touchstone along to carry the bags. Of these four women, it is of course Rosalind who has become legend. If Shakespeare's plays were a sky of stars, then As You Like It would be one of the central constellations, and Rosalind its brightest star. I prefer Rosalind to almost anyone in Shakespeare's canon, and I suspect Shakespeare did too. He was so enamored with her, after all, that he let her speak the play's epilogue, something he denied all of his other feminine creations. 
The play's wit and wisdom has gone unchallenged for the last four centuries, but it is Rosalind who sits at the heart of this play, and is she who has kept it beating strong. She remains one of the greatest theatrical characters, both in Shakespeare and in the compendium of world theater as a whole. In As You Like It, Shakespeare gave us four couples, each of whom represent a different ideal of love. Audrey and Touchstone are full of low jokes and high amounts of lust. Phoebe and Silvius are a couple of sadomasochists, while Celia and Oliver are the romantics who fall in love at first sight. Each of these archetypes have been seen before in Shakespeare's work, but with Rosalind and Orlando, Shakespeare attempted something which, for him, was entirely new. Unlike Celia, Rosalind is too wise to allow herself to fall for the illusion of puppy love. One suspects she has had her heart broken before. No, safe, die by attorney. The poor world is almost 6,000 years old, and in all this time there was not any man died in his own person who sit in a love cause. Troilus had his brains dashed out of the Grecian club. Yet he did what he could to die before, and he's one of the patterns of love. Leander, he'd have lived many a fair year, no hero had turned none. If it had not been for a hot midsummer night, all good use, he went but forth to wash him in the hell's font, and being taken with the cramp was gone. <laughs> the foolish chroniclers of that age found it was hero of Sestos. But these are all lies. Men have died from time to time, and worms have eaten them. But not for love. By having Rosalind befriend Orlando in disguise, Shakespeare allows us to see something that he hasn't shown us before. Lovers in the process of falling in love. In all his other plays, love is either an established fact or something that occurs offstage. Like Oliver and Celia, many lovers fall for each other upon meeting, and if a courtship does occur, it occurs in the wings. Even Romeo and Juliet spent all their time cooing in each other's ears. They are Audrey and Touchstone, the two lusty lovers who marry quickly before their passions have a chance to cool. Women are wooed in Shakespeare, but until As You Like It, the bard never showed us the process by which they are won. Productions tend to play Rosalind as if she is head over heels in love with Orlando right from the start, but this instills in her a romanticism that isn't necessarily present in the text. Her interactions with Orlando are largely perfunctory at first. Celia natters on, but Rosalind's behavior could be seen as nothing more than polite encouragement. Young sir, have you challenged Charles the Wrestler? No, fair princess. He is the general challenger. I combat in as others do to try with him the strength of my youth. Young gentlemen, your spirits are too bold for your years. You have seen cruel proof of this man's strength. If you saw yourself with your eyes, or knew yourself with your judgment, the fear of this adventure would counsel you to more equal enterprise. We pray you, for your own sake, to embrace your own safety and give over this attempt. Do, young sir. Your reputation shall not therefore be misprized. We shall make it our suit to the Duke that the wrestling may not go forward. I beseech you, punish me not with your hard thoughts, wherein I confess me much guilty to deny so fair and excellent ladies anything. But let your fair eyes and gentle wishes go with me to my trial, wherein if I be foiled, there is but one shame that was never gracious. If killed, but one dead that is willing to be so. I shall do my friends no wrong, for I have none to lament me. The world, no injury, for in it I have nothing. Only in the world I fill up a place which may be better supplied when I have made it empty. 
the little strength I have. I would it were with you and mine to eke out hers. Fare you well. I have no doubt that Rosalind is immediately intrigued by Orlando. She does give him her necklace, after all. But I also doubt that she would wear her heart on her sleeve, which is where too many productions tend to put it. Celia is the romantic one. Audrey and Touchstone let themselves be driven by passions, and even Phoebe is content to fall in love with the first man who has the audacity to berate her. Rosalind is too wise to show all of her cards. Celia is the impetuous lover, while Rosalind is the one who proceeds with caution. She thinks before she acts. It is notable that once she is exiled, Rosalind does not know what to do. She needs Celia to suggest their flight to Arden, and to even suggest that they travel in disguise. Why, whither shall we go? To seek my uncle in the forest of Arden. Alas, what danger will it be to us, maids as we are, to travel forth so far? Beauty provoketh thieves sooner than gold. I'll... Put myself in poor and mean attire, and with a kind of umber, smirch my face, the like will you. So, shall we pass along, and never stir assailant? Now this seems like a perfectly reasonable suggestion, but Shakespeare has a twist for us, albeit one we've seen before. Would it not be better, because that I am more than common tall, that I should suit me all points like a man? <laughs> A gallant kirtle axe upon my thigh, <laughs> a boar spear in my hand, and in my heart lie there what hidden woman's fear there will. We'll have a swashing and a martial outside, as many other mannish cowards have, that do outface it with their semblances. What shall I call thee, when thou art a man? I'll have no worse a name than Jove's own page. And look you therefore, call me Ganymede. <laughs> Actors playing Rosalind should probably ask themselves why she is so eager to become a wolf in men's clothing. She leaps so quickly to it that I'm tempted to suspect this is a thought she's had before. Even so, her description of manhood also suggests that she does not exactly have a high opinion of the gender. Note her remark about having a swashing and martial outside, as many other mannish cowards have that do outface it with their semblances. From where does this suspicion of manhood spring? I don't know about you, but I blame her father, the banished duke, who seems perfectly content to live in Arden like the old Robin Hood of England. His throne was usurped, but is he marshalling the forces to storm the castle and rescue his daughter? Not exactly. He is fleeting the time carelessly, as we are told, just as they did in the Golden World. The backstory to As You Like It is a fascinating one that hints actually at the story of Hamlet, which was already winding its way through Shakespeare's brain. As in Denmark, here we have a usurping brother and some deposed heirs who really aren't that interested in claiming the throne. That Rosalind might be upset at being left behind is clear from what she does, or rather doesn't do, upon reaching Arden. She knows her father is there, yet she makes no effort to seek him out. Nor does she make any effort to reclaim his title, or presumably her own. All this suggests that, when the play begins, Rosalind has been overcome by a certain nihilistic apathy. Like the melancholy Jaquies, she has lost hope and faith in man. One of As You Like It's main themes is the confrontation of this nihilism with romanticism, represented first and foremost by the play's two main locations, the city where we find the corrupted court of Duke Frederick, and the country where people appear to lead idyllic lives. Even the characters come down neatly on one side of the argument or the other. Celia, the shepherd Corin, Audrey, and even the sadistic Phoebe are all romantics, but Jaquies, Touchstone, and Rosalind subscribe to a more cynical philosophy. 
This cynicism is what lays at the heart of the play's most famous speech. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. Jaquies, who seems to be the only malcontent in the forest, goes on to describe the seven ages of man, and each is unhappier than the last. The baby is mewling and puking, the schoolboy whines, the lover sings woeful ballads, the soldier seeks a bubble reputation that will certainly pop, the justice has eyes severe, the old man is lean and slippered, and at the end of it all is oblivion, sans eyes, sans teeth, etc., etc., even the speech's central premise, that all of us are on a stage playing parts, implies that all of us are actors who can't live as we would truly like. Jaquies sees himself in both Rosalind and Touchstone, who he tries to lure away from Arden's romantic ideals. Fortunately, they have found others to keep them from teetering over the melancholy edge. Jaquies is the one character in As You Like It to have an unhappy ending because he has drunk too much of his own poison. For him, life remains as regrettable at the end of the play as it was at the start. As for Rosalind and Touchstone, they are rescued by their respective lovers, though not in the way one might suppose. The happy ending of As You Like It isn't happy because Rosalind and Touchstone marry, but rather because in marriage, they have each discovered the idealism which they had previously thought was lost. It is often said that Shakespeare's women are better than the men they love, but I don't think this is the case with Orlando. If the ideal lovers are meant to be compliments to one another, then this is Orlando and Rosalind, for he is everything which she is not. Rosalind is content to let the rebellion against her father stand unchallenged. Orlando fights against his brother's cruelty, enters a wrestling contest to better his prospects, and threatens the Denzians of Arden at sword point when he and Adam are desperate for food. Rosalind, however, is too protective of herself to ever enter the Colosseum in the name of love, while Orlando publicly announces his love by putting poetry on the trees. In short, if she is all brains, Orlando is all heart. Each attracts the other. It is Orlando's romantic poetry which gets Rosalind's attention, while it is her wit which captures his. Nay, you'll be so tardy, come no more in my sight. I'd as lief be wood of the snail. Of a snail? I have a snail. But though he comes slowly, he carries his house on his head. <laughs> a better jointure, I think, than you can make a woman. Besides, he brings his destiny with him. Well, what's that? My horns. <laughs> which such as you are fain to be beholding to your wives for. One could make the case that Orlando knows the truth about her disguise and suddenly toys with her to see how long she will let the game go on. Where dwell you, pretty youth? With the shepherdess, my sister, here on the skirts of the forest, like fringe upon a petticoat. Are you native of this place? As the coney that you see dwell where she is kindled. Your accent is something finer than you could purchase in so removed a dwelling. I have been told so of many, but, indeed, an old religious uncle of mine taught me to speak, who was in his youth an inland man. Now, I'm not sure if I like my Orlando to be that self-aware of the play's central conceit, but it certainly makes the ending a little more understandable, since he makes no objection to the fact that Rosalind lied to him while in disguise. In Twelfth Night, Orsino is equally unconcerned when he finds out Viola pulled the same trick, and this fact has allowed critics to write treatise after treatise on the homosexual overtones in these plays. See, in this interpretation, both As You Like and In Twelfth Night become homosexual fantasies since the plays allow the male characters to essentially have a same-sex courtship without upsetting any social taboos. 
It's hard to escape this interpretation if you decide that both Orlando and Orsino know the truth about their disguised lovers. Otherwise, your only choice is to accept the idea that Orlando is so happy to find his Rosalind that he really doesn't care that she has been lying to him for most of the play. That a good set of lovers should complement each other is Shakespeare's primary theme in As You Like It. Phoebe loves to dole out the suffering, and Silvius loves to receive it, and I would argue that there is nothing truly sincere in Phoebe's lust of Rosalind when she is disguised as Ganymede. If Silvius loved her less, she wouldn't love Ganymede more. Just as Orlando fails to object when Rosalind reveals her disguise, so too does Phoebe fail to object when she finds she has been tricked into marrying her poor shepherd. Celia and Oliver represent love at first sight, but Phoebe and Silvius remind us that there is a certain thrill to be had in the chase, both for the hunter and the prey. Lust, of course, is a major component of love, and here is where the clownish Touchstone meets his match in Audrey, the country girl who Touchstone cannot impress with his wit. Now, whether this is because she's dull or simply uninterested in a man who hides behind his jokes is something I'll leave for actors to decide. Shakespeare definitely leaves it open to be interpreted either way. Truly, I would the gods have made thee poetical. I do not know what poetical is. Is it honest indeed in word? Is it a true thing? No, truly, for the truest poetry is the most feigning, and lovers are given to poetry, and what they swear in poetry may be said as lovers they do feign. Do you wish, then, that the gods had made me poetical? I do, truly, for thou swearest to me thou art honest. In any case, Audrey has no interest in the courtly life, and neither does Touchstone. She is happy to be foul, as she puts it, and he is happy to leave the hypocrisies of the court behind. However you interpret Audrey's level of intelligence, she is at least smart enough to protect her virtue and insist that Touchstone marry her. Here, at least, she is just as wise as Rosalind. Since men are April when they woo and December when they wed, the smart thing to do is marry them before April is out. As for Celia and Oliver, their love is the one most traditionally represented in stories, both before Shakespeare's time, during, and ever since. They are Romeo and Juliet without all that pesky tragedy. Upon laying eyes on each other, it is truly love at first sight. But here, Shakespeare doesn't have a lot of time for this sort of love, and it's notable that Oliver and Celia's affair is the one that's given the least amount of stage time. Their love, like the violence in Greek tragedies, happens offstage, and it serves a similar purpose. It drives the story forward, since it is their wedding which forces Rosalind to give up her game. As You Like It has its faults. Shakespeare was clearly disinterested in plot, so much so that whenever it does show up, it almost feels like an afterthought. The sudden arrival of Orlando and Oliver's third brother, hey, who knew about him, is startling, though not so much as the revelation that the evil duke, upon meeting an old religious man, has converted and given up his wicked ways. The character of Adam, Orlando's old servant, is central at first, but he completely vanishes once they reach Arden. Now, we know that Adam was played by Shakespeare himself once upon a time, so maybe he intentionally wrote Adam out of the action because he had better things to do offstage. All these faults, though, surprisingly do little to distract from the pleasure of As You Like It, whose joy comes not from its plot, but rather its characters. As You Like It anticipated the romantic comedy, but it also anticipated Chekhov, who gave us character-driven plays, which are light on actual plot. The play is a playground for actors, and stands among one of Shakespeare's finest comedic achievements. More than any other, it showcased all the wild, whimsical, and wondrous complications that control the human heart. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. 
There are several filmed versions of As You Like It, although many of them are recordings of theatrical productions. The best of these is the Stratford Festival of Canada's production from 1983, starring Roberta Maxwell as Rosalind. Now, I'll confess to being a little biased here, since this was the first production of the play I ever saw. And like any first love, everything that comes after it has paled in comparison. In this version, Orlando is completely duped by Rosalind's disguise, but if you want to see a version where Orlando is all too aware of what's going on, then check out the 2010 production, filmed by Shakespeare's Globe and directed by Thea Chirac. As for versions made directly for film, the purists will want to watch the BBC televised version from 1978 that has the distinction of starring a young Helen Mirren as Rosalind. As for actual film adaptations, there's only two that I've been able to find. The first I'll discuss happened in 2006 when Kenneth Branagh assembled a fantastic cast for a version that transported the action to feudal Japan. If thou beest found, thou diest for it. Whither shall we go? The Forest of Arden. Now, Branna opened the film with a lengthy sequence in which the backstory of the play, all that usurping of the Duke by his brother, is actually shown. For me, this had an odd effect on the rest of the movie, for it gave the usurpation a significance that Shakespeare himself did not think it deserved. After all, no one in As You Like It is too interested in restoring the old Duke to his throne, not even the old Duke himself. Still, I understand Branagh's temptation. Less clear is why he moved the action to Japan, a move which is made doubly uncomfortable because so few of the characters are Japanese. In the end, the change of setting does little to heighten the story, although it does allow Branagh to throw in some ninjas, and how often do we ever get to see Shakespeare and ninjas share the same space? The adaptation, however, also slashes up Rosalind's part, which seems to me to be an almost criminal slight. It's almost like doing Hamlet and making the Prince of Denmark a secondary role. Much more successful, in my opinion, is the rare 1936 film starring Elizabeth Bergner as Rosalind and a very young Laurence Olivier as Orlando. The film is notable since it's the first time As You Like It was made into a sound film, and it's a fairly delightful rendition. An interesting bit of trivia for you is that both the director and Elizabeth Bergner were escaped Austrian Jews, which gives the flight from the oppressive court into the idyllic Forest of Arden a darker political dimension. The film cuts down a lot of subplots, but keeps the focus on the lovers, especially Rosalind and Orlando. Except for Olivier, none of the actors have achieved any sort of lasting glory, but they're all smart and energetic and give the text the whimsy it deserves. Now, the film isn't available on DVD as far as I know, but it's in the public domain and can easily be watched online, so I'll leave a link to it and everything else I've discussed on the homepage. That's it for this episode of Shakespeare and Bard. Next week, a play you probably haven't heard much about. It's a little play called Hamlet. For more information about this podcast, you can always visit my show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare Unbarred. And hey, while you're there, why not check out the rest of the website to see what else I do with my time. You can find information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants. It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. And it's available from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. 21 plays down, 17 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play. Let's go and cough through it.